This episode is made possible by BioCycle. This is the organic stream. Welcome. If you look at the history of civilization, there is a direct relationship between the decline of soil quality and the decline of those civilizations. All these things came from the earth. They need to go back to the earth. We're not just keeping this stuff out of the landfill and making it broader. And that's the attitude you have to take. Welcome to another episode of the Organic Stream on Campostory.org. I'm your host Aline Murphy, and today we're back with Peter Ash to talk about his involvement in the incredible transformation of a toxic hospital dump in Kerala, India. The dump was used by the Amrita Institute of Medical Sciences, or AIMS. AIMS is a state-of-the-art hospital and research centre founded by the famous Hindu spiritual leader Ama, which provides access to advanced medical care for disadvantaged people. Peter had been involved in various recycling and composting programmes for Ama ever since he visited the Amrita Puri Ashram in 2009 and was invited back to help the nearby Ames Hospital with their environmental problems. By recycling, planting and vermicomposting, they saw the levels of toxins and heavy metals drop dramatically over the course of three years. In this interview, Peter tells us exactly how all this happened, how he tackled such a challenging environment and what results were achieved. Uh, just to set the scene a little bit, Peter, um, can you tell us about the Ames Hospital and where it's situated? Uh, the hospital, Ames, Amrita Institute of Medical Sciences and Research Center, they call it Ames, A-I-M-S for short. And that it was really a trip because this had been a 12-bed hospital about 20 years ago. And it turned, it grew up like everything that where Ama goes, wherever she has a school or any kind of center, it just goes from zero to 100 miles an hour in no time. So this hospital went from a 12-bed hospital to now a 1,500-bed state-of-the-art hospital and research center, med school, dental college, nursing college, school of pharmacology, you know, the whole thing. And with Ama, if you can pay, you pay. And if you can't, you come and you get served, and you bring your family, and the family stays in the guest house while the patient's being, you know, treated in the hospital, and everybody eats for super cheap, and you stay until, you know, everything's fine, and then you go home. And so there's probably seven to 10,000 students. They serve over probably 1,200 patients every day. There's thousands of employees, um, and it's all coastal, tropical, wetlands environment. And the hospital, um, it's about seven kilometers inland from the Arabian Sea. The city of Cochin, it's a huge metropolitan area. You know, India is so densely populated. So there's uh, Edipali, Anakalam, all these communities that just all run together. It's just huge, and it's all interconnected with these waterways. Okay, right. So it's a densely populated area and a massive hospital. Mm-hmm. 
And often hospitals use incinerators to burn the medical waste. But you were telling me this one didn't have an incinerator the first few years and they were just dumping the medical waste onto the island itself. So uh, what did the dumping ground look like when you got there? And what, what did you do? Um, basically, when I got to Ames, the first thing I did was, you know, big waste audit and a site assessment. And they took me around, they showed me different properties. And the property I picked was right across this backwater channel connected to the Arabian Sea to this big island that's just not even a meter above sea level. It's, it's mushy in places. But where they had been boating the waste, and the food waste, they were just dumping it in the backwaters, but all the um, all the other waste, if they couldn't just easily recycle it, they were taking it over to the island, they were dumping it in pools of water or burn. This is from the hospital? Yes. And for years before they got the incinerator, they'd just been taking the hospital waste over to the island and burning it right on the surface of the island. They took, like, metal rods, stuck them in the ground, and made kind of a rack so they could get some air in it, and they just put the bags... I've got pictures of when I first arrived on the island where they had red hospital waste, you know, medical waste on this rack where they were burning. And the island right there where they were dumping and burning was so dead that there was no insects, there was no birds, you know, it was just completely dead. And I said, okay, this is the spot. This is where we're going to do it. We're going to have to build a big roof so we can compost during monsoon season. So they said, well, what do you need? Yeah, I need this roof. How big? Well, like by this, by that. So, okay. So they laid it out and they started digging holes to pull concrete to hold up the pillars to hold this roof up. And then all the dumping and stuff that, that I'd seen, I said, well, you know, no more dumping, no more burning. We're going to sort through this. We're going to do better recycling. If it's recyclable, that's already over here now, we're going to wash it and send it back to be recycled. If it can't be recycled, then we'll bag it up and we'll send it back to the proper incinerator. But no more dumping, no more burning. But when they started digging these holes for the footings, they're like a meter wide, and they dig down so they can pour concrete and get... Because it's like the roof, like almost a, the, our initial roof was almost the size of like a football field because we had to build these big windrows of compost. Here we're talking uh, each day we're going to be composting six to eight metric tons of material a day. So we're building these long windrows. You know, we build a pile and then we add on to it the next day and we add on to it the next day until we run out of space. So when they start digging these holes, all this stuff starts coming out of the black mud syringes, blood vials with blood still in them, catheters, IV bags, medicine packets. I mean, it was just, it was nasty. It was terrible. And I'm going, oh my God. And they had told me the reason that Ama wanted me to come back and start composting was because they were under a lot of pressure from the state pollution control board. And when I saw what was coming out of the mud, then I understood okay, this is not about composting the food waste. This is about the hospital's impact on the environment. Mm-hmm, I see. And Kerala has laws. I mean, they've got an environmental policy. They've got laws, state laws, there's federal laws. It's just that enforcing laws, they don't, like, fine you. What they do is they tell you, okay, you can't build anymore. And with APA, everything's growing. You know, more students, more patients, more technology, you know. So everything's got to keep, they got to keep building. And so we couldn't hold still. So we had to show them that we were getting better. And we actually, we cleaned up everything we could off the surface. And 
that was recyclable, we washed it and we bagged it up and we sent it back to be recycled. If it couldn't be recycled, we sent it back to go into the incinerator. What was buried in the mud, we couldn't do anything about because the hole fills up with water. You know, and this is really black, nasty, dangerous, toxic mud, you know, with needles. and So we had to be careful. So what we did was, uh, once we cleaned the surface up, then we just, we took like palm fronds and, you know, things that were growing along the water edge, and we laid them out over the surface of the black, spongy soil, just so we wouldn't sink into the mud. And we built our compost windrow on top of that. And then we'd build another one next to it. In two or three days, we'd have a whole row of compost. And in the island, there's a little channel where they had been boating into, with the waste and they'd been dumping on either side. And so on either side of this little channel, we had a plot where we were making compost. And as soon as we had turned and spread all the compost on one plot, we'd go right back in there and start composting again. And then we'd be turning and spreading on the other side. And we just kept going back and forth. And we did that for six months waiting for the roof to be finished and the floor to be compacted so that we could get a piece of equipment to turn our windrows by, by equipment. Okay. Um, so in the six months, we had built about 18 inches of finished compost on top of the black toxic mud. Mm-hmm. And before we got too far along, I went and I took a soil sample of the mud, about the upper four to eight inches of mud in this one area. And I had it tested for heavy metals. I, I asked them to test for every metal you can test for. And there was only one metal that was not found, antimony. But mercury, lead, selenium, you know, arsenic, it was all in there. And it was way over limits. And we knew that was what it was going to be. I also took a sample of the river sediment because we're not the only polluters. You know, that all that huge metropolitan area, this chemicals and open sewer lines and you name it and and the rains are running off you know but we did find that there were a sample where the dumping and burning had been going on it was more toxic there than it was in the the river especially for certain metals mm-hmm. okay and uh but anyway so um then after six months of composting out in the open, we saw now there's there's all kinds of insects and stuff, you know, in the compost and the birds are coming, you know, and so it's like alive and then there's seeds sprouting out of the compost. So we just kind of all looked at each other and we go, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's bring in some clean soil now and mix it and we'll start planting stuff, you know, and we'll restore the habitat here. It's incredible. And um, you, what else were you doing? You were vermicomposting as well, right? Yeah, and I'd done some research, you know, like how people were composting with worms in India. And so we built our own kind of what we call an open tank system. It's just basically you build walls about waist high on a cement floor, and you put a roof over it, and you put netting between the wall that's about a meter high or less and up to the roof so it's shaded and so birds can't get in. And and, uh, and you have a little drainage on the floor so if, it, if there's any liquid leaching out of the vermicompost pile, then you can capture that because it's got nutrient in it. And so we started a lot of vermicomposting. And then when we started planting plants, we used a lot of our fresh vermicompost to plant the plants with. So we knew we were inoculating the soil with earthworms. You know, there's going to be some babies, there's going to be some hatching eggs. And I knew that from research that I'd done that, that worms actually extract heavy metals out of the food that they're eating. So getting earthworms into this new ecosystem that we're building is going to be a good thing. 
Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about what happened with the soil in a minute. Uh, just before that, though, can you give me a little information on the logistics of the whole thing and the equipment you were using? How did you... Um, you know, everything gets boated over to the island. Everything. All the construction materials, all the cement block, the sand, the roofing material, you know, and then all of our plants for gardening and, you know, and then all the food waste and the wood chips and... And then we found this manufacturer in India that made this agricultural shredder. And, and then we bought this shredding machine to shred palm fronds. And, but we needed to shred a lot of wet materials too, like fresh coconut, green coconut palm fronds. And, and that wet stuff tends to clog up a lot of equipment. And so we found that this shredder machine, we bought a little one and we tested it. And then we had our own mechanics and fabricators and engineers look at it. And we told them what we needed. And so we made some modifications to it. And then we took it back to the manufacturer and we said, look, we want to buy the big model. In fact, we want to buy a couple of them. But we need these modifications built into it because we've got to run some wet things through it. And the way it's designed right now, it clogs up. So we worked with the manufacturer and they, they built us a you know, the one that we needed. But then we also needed some compost turning equipment. But nobody in India really makes composting equipment, you know, commercial scale composting. There's no big compost turners. There's no big filtering machines for compost. So, you know, I found a, I found a YouTube video of a farmer in Northern California that built his own compost windrow turner by taking the rear axle out of the heavy truck and just doing a bunch of modification. He welded on this big tube onto the wheel hub and, and he connected it, the differential into the tractor on the power takeoff unit of the tractor to drive this differential that he had this big tube with these paddles welded on it so that you could lower it down next to the compost pile and you could drive the tractor beside the pile and this tube with these paddles on it is now going to turn. And the thing is that the tractor is going forward, but this tube, this metal, big metal pipe with these paddles on it, it's got to turn the opposite direction. It's got to be going like in reverse as opposed, you know, so it can lift up the pile with these paddles that are welded to it, lift it up and throw it up in the air and get it aerated. And at the same time, we spiraled them around the tube so that it would actually throw the edges of the pile towards the middle in the middle of the pile to the outside because that's what we want. We want the middle of the pile on the outside and we want the outside of the pile moved to the inside. So we bought a tractor and we built the compost windrow turner to put on it. That's brilliant. And um, going back to the soil now, uh, what was it like then after all the work you were doing? Yeah, so I tell you what, here's what happened was um, uh, last April, I went to the very same site that I took the original sample and I dug down below the compost and the imported soil down into the same black mud that I took the original sample from. And so I went and I did the same thing in the same area in the same soil layer. And I know it was the same because I ran into plastics that were buried in the mud. And I took that black mud and I took that sample in. And it turned out that in the upper, like, 8 to 10 inches of that same original layer, we reduced three of the metals to non-detectable levels. Two others, we reduced them so that they're still detectable, but they're within safe limits to, for food consumption. There's still three metals that we've reduced by at least 50%, but are still too high for human consumption. That's still incredible, though, isn't it? 
It is, especially when you consider that so much of the food in India is grown with overdoses of toxic chemical pesticides and fertilizers and stuff, that if that food was tested compared to the plants that are being grown on the island, they probably wouldn't be much different. Okay, interesting. And we did, in in just over three years, what we did on that island, reducing the metals the way we did, that's unheard of. It's unheard of. You know, and so we've written some papers, and we've, I've presented this to different conferences. I presented this uh, last fall to the Global Humanitarian Technology Conference in um, San Jose, California. We had a, another uh, presentation at a conference held in India also late last summer. Um, okay, cool. So you've been busy trying to get the word out about this, and... Um... How do you explain to people what happened with the soil? Uh, Do you know exactly how the results came about? Yeah, so what we're finding is that, like, there's a lot of different things that are happening, and we don't know all the answers, you know, how this could happen so quickly. We know that the earthworms are playing a part. We know that some of the plants are accumulating, they're hyper-accumulators of metals. So we can plant certain plants that will pull metals out of the soil. And then what do you do with the plant? You know, can you compost it? Can you chelate it? Can you change the form of the metal? And, and then the earthworms, you know, are pulling metals out. What happens when the earthworm fills up with all these metals and then it dies? Well, another earthworm eats it, so it keeps it tied up. And then there's, a, there's some chelation takes place, and it's, it's some kind of an ion exchange, with, especially with carbon molecules, apparently, and uh, where, where there's active fungi in the soil. You know, one of the things that we did, too, is we took a biological assay of the soil. Normally, like farmers and gardeners do a a chemical soil test. You know, they look for NPK, pH, and you see they look at the nitrogen, the potassium, the phosphorus, you know, that kind of thing. And then they want to know, like, how the chlorides, how salty is the soil. So that kind of a typical chemical test, but that's just really supporting the chemical companies because then they want to sell you more nitrogen or more phosphorus or something to condition the soil with. But if you just make compost and you get the organic material and you get all the microorganisms in the soil, then everything takes care of itself. The soil pH neutralizes, and then these metals start to get tied up. They get chelated. They, They pick up or they lose an ion, and now it's still mercury or lead or whatever, but it's no longer in a toxic form that enters into the food chain. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's amazing to see it actually happening. Absolutely. And before we go now, because we don't have much time, is there anything else you'd like to add or some advice you'd like to give the people listening in? Well, you know, whether it's composting or habitat restoration or reforestation or just permaculture design or even just backyard gardening, you know, the key that I see is that we just need to look at natural ecosystems. How is nature doing this? You know, what we need to do is mimic nature, assist nature. As gardeners and farmers, when we see pests or we see weeds, we often ask the wrong question. We go, what fertilizer do I need or what pesticide do I need, you know? And that's the wrong question. Those are all wrong questions. We need to look at what's out of balance in the soil, in the ecosystem. What's out of balance if the pests are coming? Why are the pests there? Why are the weeds there? These are nature's cleanup crew. The plant diseases and the insect pests are nature coming in and taking out a plant that can't live there because something's missing. 
And what's missing is the microbiology. If, if all the microbiology is in place, then the plant will feed itself and be happy and healthy. That's great advice, Peter. But that's all we have time for now. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show to speak with us. My pleasure. All right. Okay, okay thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Peter Ash for The Organic Stream on compoststory.org. You can find more information on Peter Ash on his website, straightash.com. And as always, leave your questions and comments on our webpage, compostory.org, or on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is compostory.org. That's all we have time for this week. Tune in next week for more great stories. This episode was made possible by Biocycle. Biocycle, the organics recycling authority, is the leading magazine and website on composting, food waste management, anaerobic digestion and renewable energy from organics recycling. Subscribe to Biocycle and get access to every article published over the last 10 years and sign up for at Biocycle for our free bi-weekly e-bulletin. For more, visit www.biocycle.net.